Paul talks about a battle that we might not always think about, but the way that he presents it, it's, it's a real battle. He said our struggle is not against flesh and blood, not against human beings. Our, our struggle is against these spiritual forces in the, uh, in the spiritual realm. Um, our battle is against, he writes, the schemes of the devil. The devil schemes. The devil schemes, what are they? Uh, the word scheme is a pretty good word that Paul used um, to describe deliberate planning and activity and intent um, on the part of Satan. The word means uh, methods, Satan's methods. It's scheming. It's, it's coming up with a deliberate plan of attack. You might think of a military strategist. Uh, what does the military strategist do? Look for the, 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 the weakness in their opponent and then coming up with a plan that exploits that weakness. That's the nature of the devil's scheming. One of, one of the things that Jesus says about the devil is he is the father of lies. Do you remember that? It's in the Gospel of John, chapter 8. He's the father of lies, Jesus says. Jesus says, lying is the devil's native language. So it's interesting that Jesus shines light on that particular activity of the devil. We might think of him perhaps shining light on the destructive power of Satan, the evil power. But Jesus highlights the lying power of Satan. Um, And certainly Jesus indicates that it is through this lying activity, telling lies, that Satan accomplishes much of his destructive activity. And so when Satan attacks you, it's not, you know, it's not, uh, it's not primarily like, um, it's not primarily like the horror movie, you know, the, 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 the horror movie and the, the music starts turning a little sinister and it's a night scene and, you know, the, it's the scenes in some old abandoned warehouse or something and, and you're, as a, as a watcher, you're just waiting for that moment with the, the sinister music for the, you know, the, the thing or the, the monster or the axe murder to come jumping out, woo, you know. And, and scaring you, it's, it's when Satan attacks you, it's not, it's not primarily like that. Rather, when Satan attacks you, it, it more often sounds like a lie. Like, oh, why can't you afford that, that new car like your neighbor? That little lie that gets implanted in your head about how you're... Life's not going the right path. Um, Or there you go again. You you just can't get your act together, that little whisper. Or maybe the whisper, oh, see, I knew that they were judging me all along. Something like that. This whisper that Satan gives to you, exploiting a weakness He knows exactly what to say that resonates with some fear in us, some lack we might be experiencing, maybe a past failure. It's very intentional. 
Look at verse 13 again, what Paul says. It says, in light of this, therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. So Paul reassures us, the armor that we're putting on will not fail us. It is God's armor. It is from God, and with it, we will be able to stand, not just survive, not just outlast the devil's attacks, but to stand, to be victorious. And if that's true, and it is, we would expect this armor to be perfectly made to defend us from the attack strategies of the devil. So what I'd like to do is look at um, some persistent strategies of Satan and how God's armor protects us. And, and every time that I, I read this, this scripture, I think of, um, and I've mentioned this book before, and these different strategies of the devil, um, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. So written by uh, a, a Puritan pastor, um, Thomas Brooks in the 1600s. Um, and he lists all these different ways that Satan deliberately attacks us and says a lie to us. I want to give, I want to give just, a, just a handful of, of the different ways that Thomas Brooks writes about, but they're, they're worth reflecting on and thinking, when have I heard that one? When have I heard that one? Ultimately, Satan is trying to discredit God. Um, so let's, if you're filling in uh, blanks in the note sheets, we're about to get to the, to the first blanks. You can fill these in if you'd like. But Satan lies about God. And here's one of, one of the devices. Satan lies about God and tempts you to believe that God is not. I'm going to give you four words. Here's two of them, God, good and loving. We often think of, of God as good and as loving, and those two going hand in hand. In other words, if we're not thinking that God is loving, we're not going to think that God is good. And if we're not thinking that God is good, we're not going to think that God is loving. So um, Satan lies about God and tempts you to believe that God is not good or loving. And one of the things that Brooks writes in his book is that Satan will give you a lie like this. Satan shows, shows to us crosses, losses, and sufferings for those who live obediently to God. So we're trying to live faithful to God, trying to obey God and put our trust in him, and yet there are crosses and losses and sufferings that we experience. And we think, well, God, if this is how you're going to treat your friends, I don't need any of that. (laughs) I'm suffering anyway. I might as well give in to this temptation, for example, or do something finally that feels good for me. And this lie blinds us to God's redemptive purposes through our suffering. Also deceives us into thinking that God exists to serve our purposes, like, God, you exist to keep me from suffering, right? And, and when, when we believe that, what, how does God appear? God appears kind of uninspiring, right? Like, wh- why, why would I want to follow God if he's not helping me out in these in these ways. God seems uninspiring. Another word for us, Satan lies lies about God and tempts you to believe that God is not relevant. God is not relevant. Um, And Brooks writes um, from that book, 
Satan shows us the outward mercies enjoyed by people who walk in sin, as well as their freedom from outward miseries. And we look at someone else that we know is maybe not as a Christian. And, and maybe we know something about their ethical life and think, huh, I don't know if that's the right thing to do. But then we see their success. We see how they're enjoying life, how, how um, they're not suffering. Satan shows us the happiness of those who we know don't follow God, and we think, well, God, uh, it seems like your system of rewards is, is, a, is, a, is a, it's a bit out of whack. And when we start believing that lie, how does God look to us? God looks unnecessary to us. If God doesn't make my life better, and there are all these other happy heathens out there, why, sh- why should I follow God? God seems unnecessary. Fourth word, Satan lies about God and tempts you to believe that God is not holy. Uh, The holiness of God is God's complete different nature that sets him apart. It's his glory. It's his majesty. And what Brooks writes is that Satan presents God as one made up of all mercy. That's a lie. But you might think, now what's, what's, and I'll tell you what, what he means by that. What's wrong with that? What's wrong with, with God uh, being made up of all mercy? Well, what Brooks is stating is that Satan tries to portray God as a big softy who lets sin slip without doing anything, kind of, you know, sweeping the sins under the rug or kind of, you know, winking at, at, at sin. Oh, it's okay. Um, and this can be a very popular thought about God. Have you heard someone say, yeah, I don't believe that God is a God of judgment. God is, he's loving and he's forgiving and he's accepting. So I don't really need to worry about sinning, do I? And when we have believed that, we've missed that God is this holy God, completely set apart and, and glorious and, and absolutely worthy of our lives and our obedience. So some of the, those are some of the lies that, that Satan likes to whisper about God. Um, that's just one of Satan's schemes. The other part of Satan's schemes is lying about you. Um, so Satan lies about you and tempts you to believe that your sins are either irredeemable or inconsequential. Irredeemable sins, inconsequential sins. I'll give you four um, lines from Thomas Brooks's book. Um, one, Satan reminds you of your sins so that you remember your sins more than your Savior. Satan just keeps reminding you of, of how you're sinning, how you're messing up, you're, you're rebelling against God. It comes up over and over again. And slowly, in your eyes, you start to, to see, there's, there's no way that, that God could love me with all of these ways that I just keep turning away from God. And it's really, if you think about it, it's a lie about God, isn't it? That God's grace and love is not great enough to save you from your sins. Two, 
Satan gets you to compare yourself with those who have the reputation of being worse than yourself. And so what Satan wants to do is to get you to identify with someone that is just a real terror, a real terror. Um, and for you to see in you the same sins in that person so that you'll condemn yourself. Or Satan will try to, to get you to believe that your sins, that's irredeemable sins, or Satan will get you, uh, try to get you to believe that your sins are inconsequential and no big deal. Brooks writes, Satan gets you to, to compare yourself to Christian leaders who sin in order to normalize your sin. And you see a you know, leader in the church, well, if, if they're doing that, if they're lapsing on that, whew, well, either it's not that bad or... Well, there's no hope for me anyway if, if they're sinning like that. Um, and we start rationalizing our sin. It's inevitable that I will sin. Um, another thing that Brooks says, Satan paints sin in virtue's colors. So we start thinking of our sinful behavior in terms of its what it accomplishes, the good that it's going to accomplish. We start rationalizing our sin. Um, For example, uh, you know, Jesus says, do not judge. Um, It's like taking the speck out of someone's eye, but leaving in your own eye the the big plank. Um, Well, I can rationalize that sin of taking the speck out of someone else's eye as, hey, I'm helping them out. I'm getting the, the speck um, out. They can see better, right? Or I'm, um, I'm not being judgmental of someone. Rather, I'm just being concerned for them, kind of the same, in the same vein. Or I'm, I'm not a gossip. I'm a problem solver, and I'm getting other people to help solve this problem. Um, I'm not argumentative. There's just a lot of dumb people out there, and they need to be set straight. Lots of ways to rationalize sinful behavior. Francis, uh, Francis Frangipan writes, um, if prior to sinning, one could display his thoughts upon a screen, the entire sequence of rationalizations and compromises, the decline into deception, that would be very apparent. But the process of de- deception is not so apparent. The enemy's lies enter our minds in whispers, not shouts. In darkness, not lights. So it's, it's hard to see Satan being at work. Those are the schemes of the devil. What is Satan's goal in whispering those lies to us? Satan's goal is to isolate you from God and to isolate you from God's family. Satan knows if he can get you to doubt God, or to doubt yourself, or to doubt um, what God is doing through one another in the church, the support that we can offer. If Satan can get us to doubt, then he will be able to drive a wedge between you and God, or a wedge between you and other Christians. And then, isolated, Satan will be able to tear you apart. So, in light of all this, Paul says, put on the armor. Put on the the armor of God. And what we see is this. God's armor 
surrounds us with what God has done so that we will know how to fight. We will remember, we will see what God has done, and that will enable us to fight. What God has done for you enables you to fight, not just, not just ward off the devil, but to, but to fight, to stand, and to, to actually gain enemy territory. So let's go quickly through um, the armor. And we won't spend too long on any one of these items of the armor um, and go through a couple really quickly, actually. But uh, verse 14 says, Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. And you may recall if you've studied this scripture, it being pointed out that the belt helps hold the, the armor together, keeps the, all the other pieces in place. And without knowing uh, the truth that God sets for us in scripture, we won't be able to trust any of God's promises when we are in the battle. And we won't be able to answer the lies of the devil if we're not first laying this foundation of commitment to God's truth, to believe in God's truth. Um, The truth is foundational to the rest of the armor, in other words. Now, this should certainly inspire us to to read the Bible and to know the Bible. Um, but, But more than that, I believe this also is an appeal to answer the devil by living truthfully. Um, Anytime we deal in falsehoods, especially deceitful and manipulative falsehoods, we're actually speaking that native language of the enemy, as Jesus says. Um, Paul says, be truthful to one another as well. Not just believing the truth, but living in truth. Speak truthfully the truth of God's word to one another. Live truthfully instead of trying to put on a show to impress others, because when we continually to put on a show. Sooner or later, that show comes to a halt, and there can be a wedge between us and fellow brothers and sisters in the community of faith. Then look next in verse 14. Stand firm with a breastplate of righteousness in place. So righteousness, um, I like to think of righteousness here as um, being in a right relationship with someone being in a right relationship with God. It's a relationship that is healthy. It's not closed. There are plenty of things that will shut down a relationship, at least in part. Um, One of those things being an offense of some kind. Having a right relationship is where that barrier has been removed. And what Scripture says is that God covers up. He removes our offenses against him. In other words, we receive his righteousness. God makes our relationship with him right. The Heidelberg Catechism, uh, one of our church's confessions, has this great statement about the righteousness that we receive as a gift from God. And question and answer number 60 says, God grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction, the the perfect righteousness and holiness of Christ. I think we might have a slide for this. Can you see if we have... 
that up. There we go. God grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ, as if I had never sinned, nor been a sinner, as if I had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient to me. So what Satan will do is, anytime that you're a real jerk, uh, anytime that you act really selfishly, uh, he'll say, now just look at the real you. That's the lie from Satan. Just look at the real you. Uh, do you really think you are God's kind of person? Well, if you're wearing the breastplate of righteousness, you can answer, yes, I am, because God has made me right with him. I have received righteousness from God, not from myself. But as we saw with truth, it's, it's not just a command to stand on the truth, but also to be truthful. We see the same thing with, with righteousness. It's not just um, a reminder to, to, to know your righteous standing because of Jesus Christ with God, but act righteously in your relationships. Not, not self-righteously in our relationships, but right. And in the Bible, right living with others always means, what, refusing to cheat others? Uh, refusing to take, um, to, to, to advantage yourself by disadvantaging someone else um, or to, to seize an advantage at someone else's expense. Um, living right means looking out for the needs of others so that we can meet those needs, help meet those needs. That's right living with one another. And remember, Satan wants to destroy our relationships, not just with God, but with one another. And when we stand with a breastplate of righteousness, as we live rightly with one another, it preserves our relationships. Verse 15, next piece of the armor. Stand firm with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Think about peace with God for a moment and what that means. If, if we were not convinced that we have peace with God, if you weren't convinced of that, then you would have, if you weren't convinced that, that you have peace with God, that, that God thinks peacefully towards you, we would have every right to live in terror. Um, if we felt that as Christians, we could, we could do something that would set God against us. You know, commit that sin that just goes too far, then every day should be spent in great fear. If, if you felt that God would act in disregard towards you instead of working all things for your good, even your mistakes for your good, that should paralyze you. The gospel of peace says, with Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross, God God has turned away from his son so that, he, so that you could know that God would never turn away from you. On the cross, God refused to give aid to his son so that you would know that God will never refuse aid to you. That on the cross, Jesus experienced God's wrath so that you would never have to experience the wrath of God. And, and, and that promise of peace, the gospel of peace, that should, that should get your feet moving, shouldn't it? It should help you get out of bed in the morning where you're not paralyzed. You're not terrified about the day that's coming ahead, but you're mobilized. You can move. It should get you out of bed in the morning. It should stabilize you 
even your worst day won't cripple you. And the peace that we have with God should enable us to have peace with one another. Listen, in your office, if you had... If you had peace with the CEO, if you had peace with the president or the principal or whatever, if, if you had peace with the top person in, in your workplace, if the CEO loved your work, if your position was extremely secure, uh, wouldn't that give you the ability to live at peace with your coworkers? Put away office politics? Um, and, 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 and fighting with others for job security, forming alliances to better position yourself at the workplace? Wouldn't, wouldn't peace with the, the CEO free you up to live at peace with one another? Of course. And the same is true with God. Peace with God means we should be able to live at peace with one another. Next, verse 16. In addition to this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. So just a thought about this, and and those of you that have studied the armor, you might uh, know this fact that the shield, the language that Paul uses, the shield here, it's a a very particular type of shield that Roman soldiers would use, the large rectangular uh, shields, I mean, very, very large that they would use in concert with one another, that, that the, the soldiers would line up and, and join the shields together, making this, this impenetrable wall. And the shields were covered with, with leather. They were soaked in water so that as the arrows would come, the, the flaming arrows, the shields actually would help extinguish the, the, the flaming arrows. Why flaming arrows? So... The, the intent is to cause you know, catastrophic harm that would spread as everything caught fire. And that's what Satan wishes to do with his arrows of lies um, for there to, to, to be an impact that starts spreading like wildfire. When you have a deeply embedded lie, it produces a continual harmful effect in you. And believing in that lie about yourself or maybe about someone else in the church would produce this continual harmful effect, this continual separation between you and others. Satan wants to isolate you, get you all alone where you will be particularly vulnerable. So a community of faith, Hope Church, is a community where we um, should continue, should, should, should make a habit of saying to one another, we will believe what God has revealed in his word to us. And when our experiences don't line up with what we understand to be true from the scriptures, we will not adapt our understanding to fit our experience. Rather, we will interpret our experience in light of our understanding of God's love for us that's revealed in the Scriptures. 
So as we look through the armor, do you get it? I mean, how do we fight? We, we cling to God's word. We learn it. We, we, we memorize it. We know it. We believe it. We remind one another of it. And Paul goes on to say, well, there's a helmet of salvation. It covers your, your head. It protects your thought life as we focus on the promise of complete salvation where one day God will completely save his people from all harm, from all sickness, from all death, all pain in relationships, all painful loss. God brings us complete salvation from that in time. There's the sword of the Spirit, which Paul says is the word of God. Cling to God's word, use God's word, know God's word. But Paul doesn't just say to turn to God's word. What does he say at the very end, verse 18? He says to pray. Look at at, uh, verse 18. Paul writes, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions, with all kinds of prayers and requests. You know, why not just read God's Word? It's, it's through prayer that we read God's Word in a way we're inviting God to speak through His Word and to draw close to God through our reading of His Word. Prayer makes God's Word personal. Prayer is having your Bible in front of you and listening to God. What is your spirit Revealing to me through your word. Prayer keeps us tethered to God. Um, William Gurnall says, ultimately, we should not confide in the armor of God, but ultimately we are confiding in the God of this armor. And prayer is what roots us in, in, in confiding in God, God alone. Prayer keeps us tied to one another as well. Prayer for one another is uh, one important way that a church becomes a church family. The stones reminded us of how we were able to rally in prayer around this family, become a church family through prayer. So through prayer, we reject the lie that we are all alone. That's what prayer does. It helps us to reject the lie that we are all alone. Prayer is our activity that reminds us that God is not distant, but he's right with us. And when we would have a hard time trusting that on our own through our prayers for one another, God gives us an inner conviction that he is holding on to us. So I hope this encourages you and us in a number of ways. One, to make it our priority to know the Scriptures. Listen, the the devil knows how to attack you. And you need to know how to attack the devil back, and that is through God's Word. We cannot wear the armor of God without knowing God's Word. And so should inspire us to read it, read the Bible, join a Bible study, a Sunday school class, learn it, study it together. Two, um, be committed to one another. As we've looked through Ephesians these past two months, 
you've noted the emphasis on church unity. And chapter 6, as it talks about the armor of God, it cannot be taken out of that context. These are group instructions that, that Paul is giving us. We need one another as we put on the armor of God. And three, pray. Keep praying. Keep praying like you did for Luke Stone. Um, Keep praying in a way that draws us close together as a church family. Keep turning, as William Gurnall put it, to the God of this armor. And the promise is, when we do this, when we put on the full armor of God, we will stand. We're going to stand. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the, the weaponry we need, the shield that we need, the armor that we need. Not weapons of this world, but something that comes straight from you. The gift of your promises, the gift of righteousness, the gift of salvation, the gift of of your saving grace in our life, the gift of your strength, the the gift of an assurance that every day um, we have peace with you and you are not out against us, but you are for us and you are with us. Lord, help us to not take for granted what you have given us to really engage in this battle against the devil, to be strong as your children and strong as your church. As we know that as you build us up together, as Christ himself has said, the gates of Hades will not stand against his church that he is building. So, Lord, will you help us to stand and stand firm? In Jesus' name, amen.